We sometimes recite the Apostles' Creed at New City Baptist Church, a creed which begins with this confession. I believe in God Almighty and in Christ Jesus, his only Son, our Lord. So, when we proudly confess Jesus is the Son of God, we're following a rich and orthodox heritage. But if you ever stop to actually think what it is you're saying, Christian, when you evangelistically quote John 3.16 to your unbelieving friends and relatives, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Does God... Does God have a son? And if we're even a little bit uncertain about that, how to talk about that, how to frame that, what must people outside the Christian heritage be thinking when we confess such a thing? For instance, it's a common misunderstanding amongst Muslims that what Christians mean by Trinity is that God copulated with Mary to produce Jesus. And so God, Mary, and Jesus constitute the Trinity. Ay, ay, ay. And a Hindu, of course, is quite happy to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. After all, God and human beings are all on the same spectrum of existence. Jesus was just a little farther along than most of us. But eventually... If you get far enough along and reach the highest state of exaltation, then you can be called a god yourself. So, what kind of son of God is Jesus? I raised this question earlier in our series, back in chapter 1, and said so we look at this matter more in depth later on. Well, today's the day. Many passages could be examined to help us understand more of Jesus' sonship. But one of the most important in the New Testament is John chapter 5, verses 16 through 30. And let me warn you, this might be the most difficult passage to understand in the entire gospel. Uh, it's dense, the argumentation is very close, and to give credit where it's due, at the tender age of 22, one year after the Lord saved me, I got my hands on a cassette tape. <laughs> of Don Carson lecturing on this passage at a church conference in Thunder Bay, of all places. And I probably listened to that tape a hundred times, along with his lectures on John 6, John 10, and John 11. Uh, all four of those lectures are indelibly imprinted on my mind. And in God's providence, those tapes are part of the reason why I'm a pastor today. Uh, and the first Bible study I ever gave for my college and career group was this text, the whole text in the world, following Carson's lecture with plagiarizing fidelity. So nothing's changed on that front. Uh, I was able to transfer, though, those study notes, originally saved on an ancient 286 Tandy 1000, over to this sermon. Most of you younglings have probably never even heard of a Tandy. <laughs> but uh, John 5 is a passage that rewards close study in several ways. This text helps us refine our understanding of the Godhead. This is very much a Trinitarian passage. You may have noticed that theme in the songs we were singing this morning. And in my opinion, we can never understand the doctrine of the Trinity too well. 
as well, this text, like no other in the four Gospels, zeroes in on the invested authority of the Son over all of creation. His authority to bestow resurrection life on whom he pleases and his authority to judge human beings on the final day. An authority given to the Son by the Father. The same Father to whom the Son is functionally subordinate, yet equal in the nature of his person ontologically. So, these are the questions we're going to be considering today. Who is this Jesus Christians worship? What is his relationship to God the Father? What does Jesus mean when he refers to himself as the Son of God, but also, in verse 27, the Son of Man? And what do those titles have to do with us, the entire human race? Now, our text is preceded by this account of Jesus healing a man who is paralyzed for 38 years. Jesus heals the man, and then John remarks halfway through verse 9, the day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jewish leaders said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, See, you are well again. Stop sinning, or something worse may happen to you. In other words, in this instance, though certainly not in all instances, some illnesses may be the result the direct result of specific sin. Stop sinning, or something worse may happen to you. Then the healed man goes to the religious authorities, and he rats Jesus out. Verse 15, the man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. And thus it was Jesus who had authorized him to carry his mat on the Sabbath day, which was a naughty thing to do. Verse 16, so because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, that is, miraculously healing and then authorize, authorizing healed persons to carry burdens, because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. And this then precipitates a long discussion, a long exchange, in which we find four things of what it means to confess Jesus as the Son of God. And we're going to come to that in a minute, but first, verse 17. In his defense, that is, in his defense of healing a man on the Sabbath and then telling that man to go home carrying his mat, in his defense, Jesus said to them, all right, just stop there for a second. How do you think Jesus might have responded to this challenge? Several ways, potentially. In fact, as we, when we read through the four gospel accounts, we discover how many different responses Jesus does give to Sabbath controversies depending on the context. It, it, he never has just a, a cookie-cutter response. For example, he might have said, hold on, guys, you're, you're, you're badly misinterpreting the Sabbath laws. The Old Testament laws, Sabbath laws, insist that you work only six days a week. And on the seventh day, it's to be a Sabbath rest from physical labor. 
What, what law have I broken here? Um, it's not like I'm trying to earn extra money on the side by charging for healings on the Sabbath. You know, and it's not like this man is a professional mat carrier. This isn't his job. The man was an invalid for 38 years, and God healed him today. Or Jesus might have zeroed in on their legalistic man-made traditions. The Jewish rabbis at this time had an expression which they called putting a fence around Torah. That is, putting a fence around the law of Moses. So the rabbis would say, we want to be very careful that we do not violate the law of Moses. So, therefore, if we create extra laws to protect the law itself, and if we then obey those extra laws, then we won't come close to disobeying God's laws. It's like putting an electric fence that you can't touch around an electric fence that you can't touch. But the problem with this kind of rationale is that it's totally legalistic. Old Covenant Israel was supposed to be living their lives according to God's laws, not man-made traditions and laws. But the, the don't work on the Sabbath day commandment, it had been broken down by the religious authorities into 39 categories of prohibited work, including silly prohibitions like against plucking gray hairs. You can't do that on Saturday. But those categories weren't scriptural. They're, they're man-made traditions. And, and one of these man-made rules stated that it was inadmissible to carry any burden whatsoever from one domicile to another. If your neighbor needed a cup of flour on a Saturday, that's too bad. You weren't allowed to carry it over. And if you were lifting something inside your own domicile, like a pot of water, it couldn't be lifted higher than your shoulder. Those were the man-made rules, totally arbitrary, putting a fence around Torah. And what's happened in John 5 is Jesus has healed a paralyzed man on the Sabbath day. And even though it was an honest-to-goodness miracle, the religious leaders considered this to be work. But then the offense is compounded. After the man is healed, he rises to his feet, rolls up his mat, and presumably walks away carrying his mat on his shoulder, which is another violation of this man-made Sabbath tradition. And again, Jesus could have responded, look, fellas, these 39 rules that you have about the Sabbath and not carrying things on your shoulder, those aren't biblical commands. Those commands stem from mere human tradition. Moses never talked about this. What, what law of God have I broken or has he broken? And in fact, when Jesus is confronted at other times in his ministry over Sabbath observance, that's just what he says. But it's not how he answers here in John 5. What Jesus does in this instance is he turns the whole debate into a Christological issue. He focuses everybody's attention on himself. Jesus argues that he, he can act this way on the Sabbath because of who he is. In fact, Jesus claims the same Sabbath day exemptions as Yahweh himself. He claims equality with God. That's his defense. The son can work on the Sabbath 
because God, his father, works on the Sabbath too. That's an astonishing thing to say. So look in your bulletins, point number one. The son insists he has the right to do what the father does. In particular, like the father, the son works on the Sabbath. And it's important to realize that this takes place at a time when there was debate within Judaism about whether God himself kept the law. The question was, does God work on the Sabbath day? Yes, it was argued, God must work on the Sabbath because he sustains the universe. The universe doesn't unravel every Friday night after sunset, so God must be working on the Sabbath. He's keeping the stars twinkling and the sun shining and the earth rotating. But if that's the case, then isn't he breaking the law of Moses? And the answer that was supplied to get poor God off the hook was ingenious. Yes, God does work on the Sabbath, but he's not breaking the law of Moses because the whole universe is his domicile. Ah, that means when God works on the Sabbath, he's keeping the planets orbiting and the sun shining, and he's just doing housework. And he's bigger than the whole. So if he moves the planets and the stars, he's not lifting a burden over his shoulder. Pretty slick. (laughs) Now, here comes Jesus claiming the same Sabbath day exemption as God himself. My father is always at work to this very day. And I too am working. Have you ever been in a situation where somebody has assumed an authority they do not rightfully possess? I was talking to a friend who had a weekend house guest visiting who arrogated to themselves the authority to spank the host's children. (laughs) That did not go over well with the parents. What gives this passage its punch in its historical context is that Jesus, a human being, Jesus of Nazareth, is assuming divine authority. My father is always at his work to this very day. And I too am working. And to make that claim, Jesus is in some sense on the level of God. Or he's a blasphemer. Even his use of my father would be considered blasphemous. In corporate worship, Jews sometimes spoke of God as the father or our father, but the individual way Jesus spoke of God as his own father, my father, displays a unique relationship, and the religious authorities pick up on it instantly. Verse 18, for this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So that means the religious leaders are thinking, here's God, and here's Jesus. And Jesus is making himself equal with God, another God, two gods. And what does the Shema say? The verse of scripture Jews recited faithfully every day. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There is only one God. And this carpenter 
turned itinerant preacher has the blasphemous audacity to place himself alongside God, to make himself equal with God, to claim to be, in their understanding, another God. He must die. Verse 18. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Jews were very sensitive to the slightest whiff of idolatry and had been for hundreds of years ever since the Babylonian captivity. In God's eyes, almost every generation of Israelites after Joshua had been idolatrous spiritual prostitutes. That's the language that's used. Chasing other gods like lovers. But the Babylonian exile beat that sin out of them in a very dramatic way. And the religious leaders weren't about to allow Jesus to set himself up as another God on their watch. Now, what Jesus means when he says he's equal with God is explained in the next few verses where we find a defense of Christian monotheism. Yes, there is only one God, but he's a complex God who exists in more than one person, co-eternally and co-equally. And the person of God the Son, Jesus, isn't equal with God the Father in the sense that he's another God or he's a competing God, as the religious leaders here thought. In fact, the Son is subordinate to the Father. The Son is utterly dependent upon the Father, as the next few verses explain. No, the person of God the Son is equal in nature with the person of God the Father, because God is Trinity. And let me quickly add, friends, God's triunity is one of those non-negotiable doctrines of the Christian faith. This is a first-level gospel issue. If you deny it... You're not a Christian. Which is part of the reason why Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons are heretics. And I don't use that term lightly. I'm speaking now of heresy as extreme theological error, teaching that denies essential elements of the gospel. Jehovah's Witnesses in the Church of Latter-day Saints are heretics who need to repent and believe the truth, because human salvation is predicated on God being Trinity. Each person of the Trinity has an office, a job. And what John 5 is telling us is that our salvation is predicated on Jesus being fully God and having the authority of God. Only God can give us spiritual resurrection life only god himself can be the perfect sacrifice for our sins only god can be our judge on the final day all these considerations flow from our first point and because jesus is god that means he has the authority to rule us to tell us what to do how to live what to do with our money how to treat our parents, how to conduct ourselves sexually, 
how to conduct ourselves in his church. He has the authority to tell us what to do. He also has the authority to proclaim as God that forgiveness of sin, eternal salvation, and reconciliation with God all turn on his person and crosswork, which is precisely what our Lord told the Samaritan woman last week, isn't it? And as we read the rest of this passage, as we read all these amazing claims Jesus makes for himself as God's son, we need to ask ourselves, is Jesus insane? Or does he indeed have the authority of God himself? And it is thus, he is thus the rightful ruler of my life. That's a question for all of us. None of us can dodge that. Now, whatever making himself equal with God means in verse 18, it's not referring to the son's complete or partial, even partial, independence from the father. The son is submissive to the father. It is essential we understand this, yet all the while affirming the equality of their divine nature. Point number two, the son insists he is subordinate to the father, but it is a uniquely defined subordination. His functional subordination is grounded in his coextensive action with his father. Now, don't worry if you don't understand what coextensive means. I'm going to explain that in a second. Verse 19, Jesus gave them this answer. Very truly, I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself or of his own initiative. He can do only what he sees his father doing. Because whatever the father does, the son also does. Famously, John's gospel is a great quarry for proving the divinity of Jesus, right? When we're evangelizing and we're saying, okay, here's the gospel of John. Here's some, maybe some texts you can look at. John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Or John 8.58, very truly I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am or we think of Thomas's confession upon seeing the resurrected Jesus, my Lord and my God. But John's gospel also has lots of texts where the son is pictured as being functionally subordinate to the father. It's true. Though Jesus is the unique son of God, and may truly be called God and take to himself divine titles and divine rights, yet the Son is always submissive to the Father. Here's a helpful interpretive clue. This passage is based on an agricultural model of culture, a culture where the Son works in his Father's workshop or his bakery or his farm. He, he learns his Father's trade. I did not ask a quick question here. How many men here work the same job as their father? Raise your hand. One. One out of all of us, just one. In the first century, it would have been almost all of us. If your dad was a baker or a carpenter, then you were a baker or a carpenter. 
So the human father shows his son how to work the trade or the craft because he loves his son. And he's going to pass the family business on to him one day. And his son obeys his father because he loves the old man. And so he copies him exactly. His dad's been around the block a few times, right? And he inherited it from his father and the father before him. This is how secrets of the guild get passed on. This is the picture we're seeing in John 5. Only we're not dealing with bakers or blacksmiths or farmers. The persons involved are two members of the Godhead. God the Father and God the Son. And we're talking about the creation and governing of the universe. And the salvation of souls and the judgment of eternal souls. Not a trade or a craft. But that's the background. That's the model. It's an agricultural model. Look at your handout for a moment. I've listed all the subordination texts of the Son to the Father in this passage. But of course, there are more throughout the book and in the New Testament as a whole. And if you go, to, not, don't do it now, but if you go to your, uh, your announcement email that was sent out last night, if you go to the very, very bottom, I actually give text for the entire New Testament that you can look at. But look at what it says here in John 5. Subordination. The Son can do nothing by himself of his own initiative in verse 19. The son can only do only what he sees his father doing. Verse 19. Whatever the father does, the son also does. The father shows the son all he does. The father has entrusted all judgment to the son that all might honor the son as they honor the father. Verse 22. The father has granted the son to have life in himself. The father gives the son authority to judge. The son can do nothing by himself. He judges only as he hears, verse 30. The son seeks not to please himself, but the one who sent him. And it's imperative we understand as Christians that this subordination within the Godhead is a one-way street. The son always submits to the father. It is never, ever the other way around. The father never says, I always do what pleases the son. Or the son sends me. The son commands me. Without the son, I can do nothing. The son is subordinate to the father, but notice how Jesus defines his subordination. Uh, from the last part of verse 19, we can see that it's an utterly unique relationship. There are no earthly parallels to this. Whatever the father does, the son also does. That's remarkable. Christians are called, literally, sons of God in Matthew 5 because we're peacemakers. And God himself loves peace. So we're reflecting something of God's character when we're being peaceful. Sonship, in that context, is a functional category, right? It's not a biological category. We're not biologically God's sons, like Hercules is the son of Zeus. But we're behaving. We're behaving like our Heavenly Father. So our conduct shows that we are His children. In this culture, one's conduct determines one's paternity. And so based on your behavior... You could be a son of worthlessness or a son of the devil or a son of laziness or a son of righteousness. I can say, Nick, you're so lazy. You belong to the lazy family. You are a son of sloth. See, that's how sonship was understood in this culture. And this is one of the ways 
and how Jesus is called God's son. It's a functional category. It's not a biological one. Jesus' actions, his conduct demonstrates to all his true paternity. So, sure, Christians may be called sons of God because we're peacemakers, but none of us would ever say, and whatever God does, I do. I've never raised the dead. I've never created a galaxy or divided night from day. But Jesus says that whatever God the Father does, he does. Jesus is grounding his functional subordination in his coextensive action with his Father, which is a fancy way of saying everything God the Father does in this universe and even before the creation of the universe, the entire context, the entire, the entire extent of the Father's divine action, the Son is also there doing it too. Whatever the Father does, the Son also does. That is an utterly unique sort of subordination. It has no earthly parallels. The son can only do what he sees his father doing, that subordination. But whatever the father does, the son also does. That is absolute equality. God the father initiates. God the father sends. God the father commands. God the father commissions. God the father grants. God the son responds, obeys, performs his father's will, and receives authority from the father. This means Jesus is saying... It's impossible for the son to take independent, self-determined action that would set him over against the father as another god. Because all the son does is in exact agreement with all the father does. But the only one who could conceivably do whatever the father does must be as great as the father, as divine as the father himself. If I were to say to you, all the things I will are the same things God the Father wills. I only will what he wills. All the things I do are the things I see God doing, and whatever God does, I do. If I say that, I'm either an insane blasphemer or divine. Friend, analyze yourself. In your heart, ask right now, how are you responding to these authoritative claims of Jesus Christ? Is Jesus God or isn't he? You can't sit on the fence with this kind of stuff. If what Jesus is saying here is true, if this conforms with reality, it changes everything. Not just all of human history, but your life too. And then in verse 20, Jesus further defines his functional subordination. The father loves the son and shows him all he does. So think of our agricultural model again. Joshua the baker senior loves Joshua the baker junior. And he shows him everything about making dough. Dad doesn't hide from his son the delicious secret ingredients that have been passed on through the family for generations. In the same way, God the Father's love for the son is displayed in the father showing the son 
all he does. And the son shows his love for the father by obeying him. John 14.31 is a good complement to this verse, where Jesus says, The world must learn that I love the Father, and that I do exactly what my Father has commanded me. And Jesus, by his loving obedience to his Father, is acting in such a way as to reveal God to us perfectly. Because the Son is so lovingly obedient, when we look at Jesus, we can be certain that this is precisely what God wants disclosed of himself. Jesus doesn't take time out. Today, I'll obey God. Tomorrow, I'll do my own thing. Rather, he does only only what the Father gives him to do. He says only what the Father gives him to say, but he does all that the Father gives him to do and say. Thus, Jesus is the perfect reflection, the copy, the stamp of God himself. And it's his obedience as a man that ensures that all Jesus says and does is a perfect reflection of God's will and way and mind. Beloved, we need to saturate, we need to marinate our souls in this awesome truth. God's revelation of himself to his rebellious creation went to the infinitely unwarranted extent of God the Father commissioning and sending his eternal son to live in our fallen world. God in the flesh, the perfect God-man, actually lived among his rebellious image bearers, all the while revealing his Father perfectly, perfectly by his every action, every utterance of speech, every attitude of heart, every act of humble service. And as we look into the face of Jesus, our perception of God and what God is like becomes a multifaceted diamond of grace and love that we could never know otherwise. So friend, if you want to know what God is like, then look to Jesus. During the humility of his incarnation, the son revealed his father perfectly. Do you want to know how God thinks, how God behaves? Do you want to know the things that God loves or that God hates? Do you want to know what God's priorities are? Then look to Jesus and listen to him. Hebrews 1.3 The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. The world must learn that I love the Father and that I do exactly what my father has commanded me. Verse 20b. Yes, and he will show him even greater works than these so that you will be amazed. Jesus is going to move beyond mere healing miracles of, of paralyzed people. He will move beyond astonishing people with his authoritative teachings on the Sabbath. The son, Jesus of Nazareth, 
in obedience to what the Father shows him, will perform greater things as he assumes the full authority and prerogatives of God himself, giving life to the dead and pronouncing the final judgment. Verse 21, For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Friends, there is no power the Father has that the Son does not have too. Can you imagine, can you imagine what it must have been like standing there in this crowd, listening to Jesus, a man who would have been about Josh Beatty's age, right? Telling people that he is the one who gives life to the dead. He is the one who pronounces the verdict at the final judgment. He. Friends, make no mistake, that very thing is happening right now in our own midst, as the word is being preached. Jesus is making these same exclusivist claims in our presence. We're all being confronted with divine revelation, and we all have a decision to make. Here's one example of the Son doing all that the Father does. Just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Moses never, ever, ever talked like that. Muhammad never, ever talked like that. Gautama the Buddha, Confucius, they never talked like that. But Jesus talks like that all the time, and he does it with a straight face. And John faithfully records it all that we might believe. There's a famous quote by C.S. Lewis. I've mentioned it before in this series. I'm probably going to mention it again. A man who is merely a man and said the sorts of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this was and is the Son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. Jesus is claiming our physical resurrection life on the last day is intimately connected with our spiritual resurrection now in the present. They are both linked in this text. And neither, you'll notice, are dependent upon our will or desire. Rather, they are dependent upon the Son's sovereign pleasure. Just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Although the Son can do nothing by himself of his own initiative, verse 19, his will, his pleasure, his choices are so completely at one with the Father that it's no less true to say that the crucial decisions are his. And just as Jesus chose one sick person among many to heal at that pool, so he chooses those to whom he will give life. Just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, 
even so the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Friend, if you're not a Christian, then you need to pray for that spiritual life that only Jesus can give. You are responsible to do so and to believe. Don't you see? Your soul's salvation is entirely in the hands of the God you've infinitely offended with your idolatrous rebellion. The God who is angry with you and your sin. The God whose sort of judgment is suspended above your neck by a frayed thread. It's that same Jesus you've despised all these years, whose name you take in vain, who holds that sword. Jesus Christ, you say, when something shocking or funny happens. But he is the very God who judges you. Verse 22. The Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son. So one day, Joshua the Baker Sr. says to Joshua the Baker Jr., Son, I love you, and I've shown you all I know about baking. I've withheld nothing from you. You know what I know. So from now on, I'll make all the unleavened bread, and you make all the bagels. I'm trying to make this as Jewish as possible, right? In the same way, though all three persons of the Trinity are equal... Yet there is a differentiation of function within the Godhead. Be very careful as you pray. The Father does not die on the cross. The Son does. The Son does not pour himself out at Pentecost. The Spirit does. The Spirit does not elect sinners to salvation. The Father does. There's a differentiation of function within the Godhead. And one of the distinctions within the Godhead is that the Father gives the function of judging to the Son. The Father entrusts to the Son that office. Which doesn't mean finally the Son gets to do his own thing. Or that Joshua the baker junior gets to whip up a batch of fresh dough without any reference to the antecedent tradition, verse 30, by myself I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear. And my judgment is just, for I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. When Jesus judges all of us on the last day, he will not be acting independently. He will be acting in concord with his Father. And why has the Father given the function of judging to the Son? Pay attention. This is so important. Verse 23. That all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. And that verse... And I say this with fear and trembling. That verse is the final nail in billions of spiritual coffins. 
That is a verse which will be ringing in the ears of multitudes of the eternally damned after they feebly protest, Jehovah is God and I honored him. Allah is God and I honored him. He who does not honor the Son, Jesus, does not honor the Father who sent him. And within the context of the entire Bible, that is a remarkable verse. What did Armando read this morning in our call to worship? Isaiah 42, verse 8. I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not yield my glory to another. But now the jealous God of the Old Testament has so disclosed himself that he insists all the glory, all the adoration, all the worship, which is exclusively his because he is God, is now to be given to the Son, Jesus. The Son is no less God than he is. Functionally subordinate he may be, but God the Son is to be worshipped as God the Father is worshipped. And if we don't, then we're withholding that worship from God. That means, this means on the last day, the question God will ask us is not, what church did you belong to? How, how hard did you try? How sincere were you? How faithful were you in prayer? He will ask First and foremost, what have you done with my son? That will be the fundamental question. What have you done with my son? I have determined that all should honor the son just as they honor the father. Why? Because the father loves the son. And so, not to honor Jesus is to violate the Father's love for his Son. And this takes us to our third point. The Son insists that, like the Father, he has life in himself. Skip down to verse 26. I want to work our way backward to verse 24 because this is very tricky. Verse 26. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. What does that mean, life in himself? And you'll notice in the handout that I, actually, I hyphenated that phrase, life in himself. It means self-existence. God the Father is not dependent upon any other being. He has life in himself. All right, then what about the Son? Because the text says the Father grants the Son to have life in himself. How can you grant self-existence? It's tricky. It's hard. The only way this makes sense biblically is if this is an eternal grant. And be it known, during today's Q&A, you must not ask me what an eternal grant of life in himself looks like because I don't know. But I know what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean as the Father has life in himself and the son at one point did not. Now the son has been granted life in himself. It doesn't mean that. It has to be a picture of the eternal state of things. 
This is an eternal grant. There has always been this kind of relationship between the Father and the Son. Both are self-existent. In other words, the Son has life in himself exactly as the Father has life in himself. Remember what John says in his prologue in chapter 1, verse 4. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. Now read verses 24 and following. Very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but is crossed over from death to life. Very truly I tell you, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. And those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. How is it then that the Son can exercise divine judgment and generate resurrection life by his powerful word? It's by the eternal, the eternal impartation of life in himself from the Father to the Son that grounds the Son's authority and power to call the dead to life by his powerful word. The Son is self-existent. Mere human beings are derived creatures. Our life comes from God, and he can remove it as easily as he gave it. But to the Son, and to the Son alone, God has imparted life in himself. Verse 27, and he, the Father, has given him, the Son, authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to live, and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. By myself, I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just, for I seek not to please myself but him who sent me. Again, just imagine this, being in the temple courts, hearing this 30-year-old guy saying this. This would be amazing. Jesus is talking about the resurrection and the final judgment. Jesus has been given authority to judge. Not independently of God, right? I judge only as I hear, he says. But as the Son of Man. He judges us in that capacity. What does that mean? Why is that important? Well, the title Son of Man in verse 27 is applied to Jesus in many places throughout the gospel. That's his preferred self-designation. And in every place, in every single place except this one, the definite article is used. I know our NIV church Bibles say the Son of Man, but in the Greek, the construction is actually anarthrist. There's no article, which can mean a number of things in Greek that doesn't of itself make it indefinite, a son of man. But it's precisely the same Greek construction we see in Daniel chapter 7. Turn there. Daniel 7, this is at the bottom of page 890. This is one of those texts that puts our whole Bible together. Daniel 7, starting in verse 13. In my vision at night I looked, and there was before me one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. 
all nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Jesus is the apocalyptic son of man who receives from the ancient of days, from God himself, the prerogatives of deity and a kingdom that entails total, total, total dominion. But at the same time, he belongs to humanity, and he walks where human beings have walked. And it's the combination of both these features which makes Jesus uniquely qualified to judge us. It's the combination of both these features which make it totally appropriate that Jesus be our judge. Jesus judges us not only with the divine omniscience, he knows all things, but with human experience. It can't be said of God the Father that he's entered into our experience as human beings. But praise be to God, we can say that about the Son. Hebrews 4.15 For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. And on that last day, the dead will be in their graves. Perhaps Jesus won't return for another 5,000 years. Which means our corpses will have long since turned to dust. However, on that last day, all of us, all of us will hear the voice of the Son of God. Come forth, Socrates. Right? And Socrates will have a resurrection body. Come forth, Hitler. And Adolf Hitler will have a resurrection body. Come forth, Gillian Bell. Come forth, Esther Copeland. Come forth, Swing, Analia, VJ. And then we all will be standing before Jesus Christ. And we will all see his wounds still visible. Wounds opened on Calvary's hill for the salvation of sinners. And then Jesus, the eternal son, will open his glorified human mouth and pronounce judgment upon each of us. Either eternal life, come you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. Or eternal condemnation. Depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And on that last day, if there are some who stand acquitted before the bar of God's justice, it won't be because we will say, look at how good I am, look at how holy I've been. We will say, as we'll soon sing in our closing hymn, nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked I come to thee for dress. Helpless, I look to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Amen.